Hi, everybody. My name is Alex Verbeek. Welcome to the Planet Podcast. And if we want a cleaner, better, healthier, and a better regulated planet for the future generations, we will need to find agreement between countries on how we want to do that. So the Paris Agreement is a good example. We spoke about that in in earlier podcasts. And that's an agreement between all the countries in the world to limit climate change. The agreement itself doesn't solve the problem, but it's fair to say that we will never be able to solve the climate crisis without an international agreement. So a treaty is often a starting point to tackle international problems. But we have more global issues that need international agreement, and a very important one is plastic. There is 100,000 marine mammals and turtles and 1 million seabirds that are killed by marine plastic pollution annually. And this is just one of the shocking data that I digged up in preparing this podcast. This is data from uh, the UK government in 2018. Now, somebody that really knows about the problem of plastics and who is working for a plastic treaty is Tom Gamage. Tom is a marine biologist and uh, conservation scientist by background. And Tom's research focused on developing more effective and community-centric governance systems for common pool resources in the tropical Indo-Pacific. And he's currently working as an ocean campaigner at the Environmental Investigation Agency where he and his team have been working to secure an ambitious new plastics treaty for the past few years already. I know that he has a strong belief that a new global plastics treaty is the only viable long-term pathway out of the plastic pollution crisis. So, Tom, welcome to the Planet Podcast. Thank you, Alexander. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And uh, yeah, my first question is, how does someone become a campaigner for an international plastic treaty? What what motivated you to work on this issue? Oh, well, I mean, that, that's a very, very good question. And I, I certainly didn't never envisage myself being a sort of full-time campaigner. Um, but I've always had a real sort of adoration of, of the ocean, of, of nature. So generally, it's always been a great source of inspiration for me. Um, and so... I always knew that I wanted to sort of work in conservation science. Um, and when I started to actually you sort of practice it in my, in my early, early career, uh, I noticed that, you know, decision make, you know, it, it, you, you can spend years developing a scientific research project, you know, and you can put in all this work. And if you don't have the proper mouthpiece for it, you know, it can just sort of end up sort of dying a death and sort of going nowhere. And so I started to really enjoy the the element of my role that was actually sort of acting at that interface between science and 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 practice and science and policy and sort of helping to communicate that. Um, and 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 it's amazing what you can do when you have the right when you're equipped with the right knowledge and you, you speak to the right people at the right time in the right way. Um, and my, my my passion for it sort of grew from there really. Yeah, I can imagine. I recognize a lot, but I came from the other from the other side. I started the policy and started to recognize that we needed to, as diplomats, to reach out to science because we 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 were missing a lot. Mm. So it's um, that you and I are kind of virtually shaking hands at this moment. This is very recognizable from both sides, I would say. And um, yeah, interse- intersecting with one another. Yeah, 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 I see it that way too. And so if. Uh, this when we talk about plastic in the oceans, how big is the problem? I just mentioned one number that is already shockingly enough. But but where, um, yeah, can can you can you say something about the scale of the problem and where should we start with with tackling this problem? 
I mean, w when you get onto a topic like plastic pollution, it's really quite uh, difficult to convey just the magnitude of how serious this problem actually is. I mean, it, it's up there with climate change and, and biodiversity loss. It is quite literally one of the most urgent and pressing human health disasters, really, um, but also uh, environmental um, environmental crisis and, and planetary boundary threat. Um, it ramp the the toxic pollution caused by rampant overproduction over the years of virgin plastics and its life cycle is completely irreversible in any sort of meaningful quantities. And so once it gets into the environment, it's almost impossible to reverse. And once it's in the environment, it drives biodiversity loss. Um, it, it actually releases trace gases of, of carbon dioxide and methane, which are powerful climate pollutants. And, they, and it, it risks generating large-scale harmful environmental disturbances. And this is sort of what people don't fully comprehend about this issue is, you know, the, the visual element of, of plastic pollution is, you know, the, the stereotypical sort of images of, of turtles choking on plastic bags and, and, and whales' stomachs full and cigarette butts on the beach. And they're terrible. You know, I'm not under, undermining that at all. But there's a much more sinister suite of impacts that are sort of not really being spoken about. Um, and, and one of those would be um, one of those would be it's it's a contribution to climate change, and another one would be the human health disaster that is that is plastic. Um, but I mean, yeah, sorry. Yeah, because like you, I mean, my my first when I hear about you know, plastic problems, I think about the ocean, not so much the air or land. I think about animals more than humans. Um, yeah, I think the the what the ice, the, the, the polar bears for the climate change, the, the turtle seems to be the, uh, the, the image of plastic. But human health is also an issue that is interesting because one of the recent developments I saw on climate change is that air pollution is really getting much more attention in, in the past two years. It seems to kill somewhere between seven or nine million mm -hmm. people a year around the planet, which is a kind of until recently rather unknown cost of climate change and that seems to be the way with plastic as well because plastic is also bad for our health but many people are not aware of it it's i mean yeah i mean pl plastics in our food uh we on average the average human being eats about five grams of plastic a week and that's through mostly through um oral ingestion but also through um aerosol like inhalation as well um, there was a, there was a study done in the last couple of years that, that looked at microplastics in air, uh, and they they found sort of ten to fifteen thousand microplastic particles wasn't unheard of in a sort of regular um, in a sort of regular living room or a dining room or something at someone's home. So these these are externalities that are affecting absolutely everyone, um, and we don't fully understand the implications of that. Yeah, that exposure. So the room I'm sitting in could have fifteen thousand tiny pieces of plastic in the air, which I'm breathing in and coming on my lungs. That's a exactly. scary thought. Exactly. It could be the new asbestos. But I mean, when we think about microplastics, we have to consider it, you know, we have to consider the different size gradients involved because you've got, you know, anything from something that's five millimeters, like a plastic pellet, you know, the, the precursor to all plastic products that are melted yeah. and molded. Which, which is quite large, five millimeters is still small, but it's fairly large. And But nanoplastics can be down to the nanometers, you know, uh, below micrometers, <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. sort of an order of magnitude smaller. And and is is it bad for your health? What do what do we know about it? 
it doesn't sound like healthy. I mean, it's not like I'm going to eat my credit card or something. But and yeah. is it is it damaging for your health? Does it does your body store it somewhere? Uh, it's a really good question, and scientists are really sort of rushing to find out the answers to some of these questions. But I mean, so there's two primary mechanisms that we kind of understand in terms of impacts. One is the particle toxicity of the microplastic particle itself, and the other is the chemical toxicity. And so when it comes to chemical toxicity, for example, a really shocking fact is that almost every single human body, an animal body ever tested, contains some sort of plastic-derived or plastic-associated chemical. But determining where those chemicals came from is a whole other matter. Um, and, and some of the industry have been, you know, over the decades have been very, um, very forthright in sort of claiming that, you know, didn't come from my plastic, you know. But I think the, the evidence kind of speaks for itself in as much as we've got, you know, 10,000 or so at least different chemicals that are, you, that are added to the plastic resin and, and plastic packaging, for example. We know those chemicals come loose. Um, we know they can enter our body and we know they can elicit adverse effects at very very low doses um so that's that that's the chemical and then when it comes to the particle toxicity yeah. i mean it's very difficult to do studies on human beings right <laughs> epidemiological studies because you, you, you don't want to pump someone yeah. full of like micro nanoplastics it's kind of not particularly ethical um but the lab studies are really really concerning and two weeks ago a study was published where they basically found that in lab settings human tissue could basically die in the presence of microplastic. It can cause cytotoxicity, inflammation, and cell death, uh, concentrations which are relevant to what we're exposed to every day. Um, and so while it hasn't been categorically proven, I don't think it ever will be because we can't do the studies in order to do that. But it's, it's, a, it's a global um, human rights issue as well. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, in, you said it's, it's partly breathing, it's partly uh, food. Is, does it help being vegetarian or vegan? Um, well, I mean, microplastics have been found in carrots, they've been found in apples, oranges. I don't, I don't think we're safe from any of that. That but doesn't are, save me. <laughs> but I would imagine, I mean, in terms of uh, the, the evidence shows that like fish, for example, when they eat microplastics, some of it does pass through the gut. And so if you're eating a fish, for example, it's good not to not to eat maybe the stomach, <laughs> I guess, or some of the some of the organs as well yeah. uh, concentrate some of the toxins that are present in the ambient water as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, you, you said you're working on towards a treaty. So uh, if, if that is the first tool to regulate something, which is something I, with my background, I, I believe in, you often have to start with a treaty if you have difficult international negotiations about a problem. What, what should that treaty regulate? It's not something like, you know, nuclear weapons or something that you prefer to ban completely because we, we cannot really do without plastics. Uh, there's probably also huge uh, industry um, uh, uh, politics involved uh, that have their own interests. There's probably countries that produce oil and know that they can no longer produce oil, so they hope that they can produce more plastic. So I can imagine there's there's all kinds of, of complications here, but I'm just speculating. Could you could you tell a little bit about where what you want in there and where the problems are? Yeah, that's, um, I, th I suppose I might I might just take a take a tiny step back and just sort of explain why we need a treaty and sort of maybe where we are right now and that yeah. I, I think that's sort of a, the natural previous step I suppose. Um, so yeah. back in back in two thousand and seventeen, the UN Environment did a study. So UN Environment Program 
did a study and they basically found after looking at 36 regional agreements and 18 global agreements that um, essentially the, the governance of plastic throughout its life cycle, all the way from you know the extraction of the resources used to produce it, all the way through to sort of final disposal waste management was fragmented and, 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 and ineffective and inefficient. And, and since then there's been a harmony of calls from different uh, national governments, entire regions, even private sector actors calling for uh, a global agreement because this is such a wicked problem. When we look, I spoke through some of the some of the some of the impacts and those numbers sort of speak for themselves. But also when we look at the sources, on the other hand, it's also equally as daunting. You know, we have agricultural waste. You know, we have we have cigarette butts. We have um, fishing gear. Um, we have plastic pellets. We've got all the single-use plastic items that we use every day. We've got packaging. You know, the sources are, are, are absolutely enormous, and the the drivers are um, are international. You know, international problem drivers. We have international problem drivers. We have transboundary impacts, and we have a deteriorating environmental trend, which we can quite clearly see. And so, when we apply that to other environmental issues, uh, you know, things like biodiversity loss or climate change, a global agreement is always there. There's always something governing, you know, it at the global level where countries yeah. come together and make decisions. And this is notably absent for plastic. And so since notes, since 2017, particularly, there has been this growing momentum and this momentum has really rich, reached fever pitch. Um, and so we are you know, due to COVID, the UN Environment Assembly, which is where they meet to sort of decide these sorts of things, uh, was supposed to meet in 2020. That was delayed till 2021. And now we're looking at February 2022 next year when that will um, cut, sort of come into fruition, hopefully, if, if, it, if it takes place. which is looking less and less likely at the moment. Um, but sorry, I just wanted to give that sort of bit, bit, of, yeah. con bit of context there. Uh, Isn't there any kind of reg any kind of commitment in the sustainable development goals i can imagine in under under oceans for instance yeah absolutely i mean this is sdg 14 which is the ocean sustainable development goal which is fantastic and goal 14 point target 14.1 is about um, eliminating pollution right but you know we look at the other sustainable development goals and this is why plastic is such a wicked problem is because it there's so many different uh, sustainable development yeah. goals that that sort of apply and and you've also got sustainable production and consumption, yeah. which is, you know, SDG 12, uh, which is really key. And that's actually really yeah. a point of contention at the moment, because you can imagine that the amount of money that's involved. There's about 200 billion US dollars worth of petrochemical infrastructure that's just been put in or planned to be put in, in the US, Permian Basin and, then, and others to frack for plastics, basically. So you can imagine the financial and economic incentives are enormous. Yeah, there must um, be enormous. Yeah. yeah. Probably SDG six six point three as well, I suppose. Should be part yeah, of I'd, I'd have to look up wastewater the other, and to, so. Have, yeah, yeah. yeah. But absolutely. So there, there is some guidance, but that's of course not uh, not a tree. And um, yeah, so then yeah, moving towards next step. I mean, if if this problem is so huge, where where do you start to to regulate this? What what can you put in the treaty? What what aspects? Is it production? Is it use? Is it recycling and, and i don't know i can think of all mm. kinds of things but uh, but where where do you start well yeah it's a daunting issue but i suppose i mean we, we can start by looking at the, where do we need to intervene right 
and we need to intervene all along the plastics life cycle. So what is a plastics life cycle? Well, it's obvious where it ends, you know, it ends where, you know, it's either kind of incinerated or burnt or ends up in the environment. But where does it begin? And, and we say, well, it begins at polymeriz polymerization, which is uh, the point at which chem plastic turns from chemical, you just liquid, into a plastic resin, right? Um, and so that's yeah. virgin pr plastic production, essentially. And so what would we, what we would pr propose is some global objectives uh, which would have measures to reduce plastic pollution and promote a safe circular economy. And so this would include the long-term elimination of discharges uh, globally. Um, but we've, 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 so I'll take a step back. So we'd have upstream measures and, and sort of midstream measures and downstream measures. With regards to the upstream measures, this is production, right? So we would expect there being a global reduction target. And then there would be perhaps national action plans, policies and legislation that would be implemented at the national level, um, for, you know, waste prevention and management is, is, is a good example. And that those national targets would then sort of feed into uh, that sort of global overarching target. So implementation would, you know, we can lend learnings from other environmental agreements, you know, implementation on the national level, um, you know, stringent monitoring and reporting regimes, um, making sure that countries are, you know, held to account on their commitments. Um, but yeah, so that, upstream we would want to see you know caps on production a phase down of production to sustainable production and consumption in alignment as you say with with sdg 12. we also need to think about the design of plastics i mean we need to design for reusability we need to design to make sure yeah. plastics are recyclable i mean a, an example would be you know i went into a shop last week and there's a whole aisle of plastic bottles that were red had a red pigment coloring which is absolutely insane when you think about it, because from, you know, from a moment's um, sort of benefit in terms of marketing, you know, to the consumer, that is now completely useless material. Um, no recycler wants to take in that uh, red pigmented yeah. PET, you know, it has absolutely no value whatsoever. And so we, what we need to do is we need to get the designers in the same room with the guys you know, downstream you know, the waste management guys and be like, okay, look, how do we do this? You know, how do we make your lives easier? But also how do we reduce waste as much as possible using, you know, that waste hierarchy that we have, which is a framework that we have in, in the EU policy and elsewhere, which prioritizes reduction. Um, essentially, we need to be using less plastic. Um, and the source of that does need to come from reimagining our relationship with the material itself. And that would involve a cap and a, and a phase down of its use. Um, but also at the other end of the spectrum, we would also need, you know, waste management and collection, making sure that, you know, whatever we do produce gets captured and put back into the system. Um, but I suppose that's it in a nutshell. That wasn't particularly... Well and uh, I, if I look at my own household, I, uh, I separate in at least about seven different categories, I think, um, uh, to to my <laughs> adding to my stress levels is that I always see at the end of the week that plastic is the main part of my waste, even though I'm environmentally conscious and try to have as little as possible. And then I always wonder: there's this this separate waste collection for my plastic. And then what happens? I've had so many people telling me, well, they all just throw it on the same pile of trash and they all burn it, and I never really checked it. What happens with it? Do, do we know how is is it really recycled? What do they make out of it? And and is it uh, can they actually use all that plastic? Um, recycling is a is a funny one. 
So let, let's, put, let's put some numbers to it. Um, so of all plastic waste ever, of all plastic ever produced, sort of around, around 10 billion tonnes, that's 10 billion with a B since the 1950s, around 79% of that is either in landfill or it's in the open environment. And only nine and only nine percent of all plastic waste has ever been recycled once, right? Let alone being recycled twice or three times. But recycling is a false is is a, is a false solution um, in my ultimately in, in my opinion um, at the moment in the system that we currently have, because there is this complete lack of transparency in the public domain of what they're putting in these plastic products. Um, it's yeah. a complete industry secret for the majority of the time companies can put in whichever chemicals they want in whichever quantities without informing, um, you know, regulatory authorities or the public even. Um, and so this is a real, this is a real problem. So um, this transparency should also be part of the, of the treaty, not only a kind of commitment to recycle as much as possible, but also being more transparent on what, what molecules are actually in there. From, from a health and environment uh, perspective? Absolutely, yeah. Certification schemes, chain of custody, uh, absolutely. There needs to be full transparency throughout the uh, throughout the value chain, yeah. yeah. And we, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, less production is, is something which I would applaud because I believe we, we have way too much and it's too cheap and therefore we waste it so much. Uh, but the countries that produce plastic uh, which is to oil producing countries, at least they bring in the raw materials. Um, I can imagine that they are not very enthusiastic and that they will either be against it or that they will ask for compensation because they lose their income. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's always these sort of fights with, you know, economic, national economic interests and, you know, plastic, in the case of plastic, it's no exception. In fact, uh, especially in the case of plastic, because like you right, like you rightly mentioned, you know the oil and gas giants are seeing plastic as a cop out, you know, as, as a way to sort of keep themselves relevant, you know, in, in in a world that's actually you know seriously responding to sort of climate change. Um, to to remain relevant, they're they're sort of using yeah plastic as a as a to cross subsidise as well, right? Um, and you know these countries like China and and and, and so on and so forth. I mean, slowly the narrative is, is being shifting. Countries like Brazil have, have now come out in support of a global agreement. A couple of years ago, that was absolutely not going, not possible. You know, uh, Japan, who is still um, holding the holding the global conversation back in, in 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 some respects in terms of ambition. You know, for years uh, lobbied against something legally binding at the global level, or now they're proposing their own vision of a legally binding agreement. You know, so we are seeing things slowly start to to change even in these countries that have um that have a a high stake i'd say in the in the in the industry in that sort of economic interest but there are also unknowns you know at the moment the gulf states are still very much a question mark um russia has come out came out in support of a global uh, of a global treaty as did the us but it's still unsure sort of what type of global agreement it will be so Really, at the moment, it's not so much whether or whether or not we will get a global agreement uh, or a global treaty, something legally binding at the global level. It's just a matter of what that will be, um, and that yeah. that will be a that will be a fight for sure uh, up until up until the last. Yeah, my my experience from negotiating treaties, which goes some years back, is that at a certain moment, even the ones that are really against the treaty realize that you can't. 
you can't stop the movement anymore. And what they then do, they jump on board. So it's, it's, uh, they are much more effective to, um, to slow or sabotage whatever word you want to use from within than, than from the outside. Uh, so you, you may be negotiating with countries uh, on the content of the treaty that once it is agreed will never sign or ratify uh, the agreement afterwards. Um, I won't mention names, but there are some, some, some quite big and important countries that often use this, this tactic. So you, you have, uh, you have quite a challenge ahead. What, what I'm wondering is, um, where's the industry in this? Because if you look at, uh, the comments on, on the latest on COP26, the, the, the climate summit that was uh, last month in, in Glasgow, um, there were quite positive comments on quite a few companies that were uh, sometimes mm. uh, not all the companies actually there, were, there was a lot of fossil fuel industry present um, but uh, quite a few companies have been very active and, and were seen as being more progressive than quite a few countries is that something you see on plastics as well or is it more the classic uh, lineup that you have the NGOs that are the most progressive and then you have some some like-minded countries that follow them and at the end of the chain you have industry that is just just putting their heels in the sand and try to stop the whole movement yeah that, 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 that's a really good question I think if you were to ask that question say 10 years ago I'd probably say it was maybe you know, one good actor, one well-intentioned actor for every, you know, I don't care or every, you know, free rider um, company. But now, but now it, it does seem to have sort of shifted. And that's at least in part being due to uh, NGOs like us sort of engaging directly with various different industry actors over the years and, and just sort of hearing each other out uh, and, and just sort of exchanging, uh, exchanging thoughts and opinions because, you know, it, a treaty does make sense from 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 the business case, and that's been done by, by the good work of WWF and, and Ellen MacArthur Foundation. They they worked with you know, hundreds of different companies to develop uh, the business business case for a global treaty. It's a manifesto, basically. It's a it's a fairly short sort of um, few paragraphs, which basically outline support for a global treaty. You know, it, it does things like reduce you know reduce compliance risk across markets. You know. Um, and, and it came up with a number of these different points on just how a global treaty could really actually, you know, assist in sort of level the playing level, leveling the playing field and, and op- offering advantages economic in, in some respects. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist or an, an expert on that uh, uh, at all, but the, the industry are not a monolith. I'd like to just make that point. You know, they're, they're not they're not the same people. They they all have different interests. You could think that yeah. plastic is not just. It's not just cups and, and plates and, you know, you've got its computer screens and its cars and, you know, it's, it's high-end equipment and it's medical, you know, it's, it's, it literally, it's literally just so, so cross, so cross-cutting. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's uh, a very mixed field of, of industry. I've, I've seen actually companies sometimes do really good things. I mean, Take, take, for instance, the beverage industry. They used to be, um, they had a bad name. I, I used to work a lot on water issues. And then often the beverage industry had a bad name because they went to some poor country. They kind of stole all the local water. They used it for their own production. And the local population mm. got nothing. And they soon learned, uh, especially pushed by 
by by either populations or or by consumers in other countries uh, getting 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 active against this kind of policies they soon understood that they really have to to get their act together and do it better and nowadays i think already in the past 10 15 years the beverage industry is often ex- an example of how to how to work with these uh, these issues and of course they still produce a lot of uh, pet bottles etc uh, but I, yeah, my experience is that they are, they're willing to join those kind of debates or a company like Unilever, for instance. Um, I know they get criticism as well, which is probably fair, but they've also, uh, shown, yeah, fantastic examples of what you can do as a company. So I'm very interested to see how, how, how this will continue in, in the future. One thing you didn't touch upon yet is, um, the removing of the plastic that's already in the environment. I can imagine that should be part of a treaty that we at, at, at least promise to do our best. But but what is happening in that field? Uh, are what what are communities doing? What are countries doing? What are NGOs doing in this field? Is that something that you that you're also active in? Um, short answer is is no, um, and that's I suppose you have to choose between you know you have to decide where you put your energy I guess, um, but you know plastic in the environment is called but scientists call it poorly reversible, but it basically means it's you know irreversible in any in any large quantities, and so while you know while you know beach cleans I still do beach cleans you know I, I still participate in in that on a personal level, but you know it's, it's not ultimately going to solve the problem. Um, uh, one thing a treaty could yeah. do is it, is it can set up a dedicated, you know, multilateral fund, for example, like a big pot of money that, you know, that the, the, the rich countries will pay more into, the poorer countries will pay slightly less into, and and part of that function could be, you know, remediation of hotspots, you know, things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch potentially into the future, um, uh, UNESCO World Heritage sites, uh, you know, st- stuff like this, because it's going to keep washing up on the beaches, but we need to be, we need to be if we are going to enter sort of large-scale remediation, there needs to be coordinated efforts and we need to, it needs to be science-driven and we need to identify hotspots and, and, and target those. Um, yeah. But some of the initiatives at the moment, I mean, I, I yeah, I kind of, um, I hold my reservations against uh, some, some large-scale efforts that are being done at the moment. Um, yeah, they are very, they get a lot of attention in the media, but I always, I always believe you should start at the source um, even though I admire everybody that is that's that's doing their best, but I I I think I'm very much on your side here. It is it you 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 will never solve it if you don't uh, if you don't start at 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 the source and if you don't start with an international treaty. So I guess uh, all all of them are are valuable. I have a huge admiration for these guys that I often see passing on on, on the screen in social media that are in. I think they're either in South Africa or Namibia that are then running with with a few guys behind those uh, seals and sea lions that have all this plastic around their necks and and they they catch them and fight with them uh, to help them to to get the plastic off. Uh, th- these efforts are extremely admirable, of course, um, but it's 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 literally a drop in the ocean uh, compared to. Uh, to, to the big numbers. What um, if 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 we look at at the people that are listening now live? Thank you for being here, by the way, the ones that are listening now. Um, but uh, the hundreds of people, I hope that will listen later when we publish the podcast. What uh, what can they do? What what is what can you do in your own daily decisions to 
to do your own little part of 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 helping with the plastic problem. Mm. I think that's, that, that's also a really good question because you know, as individuals, we also have you know a level of, of responsibility. And over the years, I think I think the 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 industry has sort of overexploited the you know personal responsibility card. You know, sort of saying, oh, it's not us; it's you that has to sort of change your life to make sure that you fit into the way that we want to do things. And so principally, I, I believe that it should be the producers and the companies that need to be you know, switching to make things easier for consumers. But with that said, I, I mean, and I, I still try my utmost to, um, I mean, really simple things like just taking a bag with you to the shops. Yeah. I wouldn't believe how many how many bags you would save. It doesn't matter what material yeah. it's made from. Ultimately, as long as you're reusing it, it the, the best bag you have is the one that you already have. Um so it's yeah. ultimately it's, it's it's sort of trying to transition away from single use attitudes and more towards resource stewardship and thinking carefully about the resources that you consume and trying to buy, for example, um, like I, I go to a local sort of little grocer here and I take my own little bags and I don't I don't go to the supermarket to buy my my veg, for example. That's one small thing. Uh, writing letters to MPs, you know, people say that all the time, but it does actually make it can actually make a difference, particularly if you target your letters to to members of parliament or, or representatives in the uh, I think wherever. Um, if you target those letters um, and, and to, to, to MPs that you know will will care, and, and that that can also make a difference. Um, but yeah, I'm not. These are things I, I well, I, I don't do the writing to parliamentarians, which is which is more an Anglo-Saxon thing, I believe. Yeah, but if yeah. we don't have so much in the Netherlands, I, I do use um, uh, the plastic bags I have. They are plastic. Uh, some of them are, um, but I, uh, I think not taking plastic bags from from uh, from the shop that is a really good one. What helped enormously is. The law we introduced in Netherlands that uh, the shops do have to ask uh, a few cents really for a plastic bag, but at, as soon as they were given a value, however minimal it was, um, the the, the uh, request for bags in the shop really really went down. And I remember the numbers from Ireland that that were that were extreme. How far just a five cents. That you had to pay for plastic bags how much that has changed uh, the behavior of people and i see when i'm um, it's been a been a while since i've been really traveling but in days that i was in spain uh, even still recently where even they don't even ask you they pack everything they pack in small plastic bags so you leave the shop with like 10 plastic bags which is crazy, which I then put in my suitcase and then later use, use again at home, which is a bit silly. So, yeah, so those are things. Yeah, I, I always believe that one of the things what, what you can do is uh, is vote, as as you said, right to your MPs. And I think you also have to, as voters, we have a voice. You can always vote for a party that takes these kind of issues seriously. Um, and I hope that increasingly people will do so, that they will look at, at elections through an um, environmental lens. Be- yeah. I also think, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, uh, I think Twitter as well and social media, if used appropriately, can also be really effective. I mean, yeah. Twitter, for example, I mean, if you know someone's going to go into a room and, make, and have to make a decision about something important, you can literally ping them, you know, and they might even get a notification on their phone or something, you know, right as they're about to do that. And if enough people do that at the right time, you know, that could be, you know, the difference between a favorable outcome and a not very favorable outcome. 
you know and so this it's kind of it's, yeah. on one level we feel powerless but on another on another level we're more powerful than we've ever been <laughs> you know yeah, that's interesting. I, I went on Twitter, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, basically to tell the story about, about climate change. That's the reason I went on Twitter. But I never thought about, you know, sending uh, a direct message to uh, some kind of uh, big guy going into an important decision room and at that moment target that person just personally as a DM, which is uh, an, an amazing way of campaigning. That's very interesting. Never thought of that one. Um, we, we have a bit of public. Um, if anybody wants to ask questions, um, just know that there's a, a button or I think a telephone. My screen looks different than you on the bottom right where you can just press. And that's, that's just like that is raising your hands uh, to ask a question. Um, so then, um, uh, then you are um, allowed in. Um, in the meantime, if nobody has questions at the moment, um, what are what are the last thoughts that you would like to to uh, give us as kind of giveaway takeaways home? You know, somebody that now, once we close the podcast, uh, meets a loved one who asks, "What were you listening to? What should they say?" Well, I heard this this guy Tom Gamarsh talking, and he mentioned something so interesting. I want to share this with you. What should that be in, in, in two lines? Wow, that's really a tricky one. I think I think I'd probably say that I'd, I'd have a sort of flip answer, right? So firstly, I'd say the plastic pollution crisis is one of the most urgent and pressing human health and environmental crises and planetary crises in existence right now. But there is hope and the hope is a global treaty essentially this is this is this is our opportunity to redefine our relationship with this material um this is this is this is the point this is it the time is now it's now or never it's february next year you know um the decision will be made to negotiate something legally binding and um let's hope god that it's it's ambitious enough to to tackle the issue so that's a great one-liner. It's it's a big mess, but uh, there's hope that we can solve it. That's a, that's a very good one. A very last question, uh, because then I'll let you go. I, I said we would do this half an hour already at like 40 minutes now. Um, what would be a kind of issue in a kind of podcast show that you would like to see in a next one? It doesn't have to do with plastic, but something else uh, that you think should be tackled. We already spoke about climate change in, in the previous ones. Now we talk about plastic, but anything this called the planet. So anything that takes place on the planet where you think like, well, that would be good to, to give a bit of attention. It doesn't always have to be a problem. It could also be something that is really nice or beautiful. Um, I think the, the the focus will often be on things that we would like to improve or that we ask attention for. But could you think of something that I should uh, that I should focus on in, in the next podcast? I think that's a really that's a really good idea. I think um, some of the work at the moment on sort of landscape scale conservation, ecosystem based conservation, sort of a much more holistic understanding of how nature works in the context of this social ecological system that we function in. You know, um, I think at the moment some of the yeah. some of the science, some of the understanding coming out of that sort of landscape scale conservation on land and connecting ecosystems and sort of how we situate ourselves within 
you know, natural landscapes. Um, that could be really, really interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's something we work on a lot in the Netherlands, which is it's such a uh, patched up country in 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 so many. It's it's so crowded. There's so many people here. We have, we have more than seventy million people in a very small country. And we do a lot on nature conservation. One of the things we work on now is to connect all these little um, areas of nature. And we, we've built, for instance, uh, dozens and dozens of eco-ducts. Um, and the result of that is quite a spectacular one. I still have to write about it in the planets, but for those that are listening might be interested. Uh, I live now on an island in the southwest of the Netherlands that is connected to other islands and ultimately to the mainland via via dams and a couple of days ago we had a wolf turning up in the next village and that is probably the first time in like 200 years or so that a wolf actually reached the coastline of the netherlands we had a, two three years wow. ago the first wolves in the east of the country but there's one it might be right now in my backyard literally i mean it's, it was just seen yesterday just five kilometers away from here um and that is an amazing result by connecting, uh, connecting nature. So that's yeah. I think it's a it's a fascinating issue uh, to uh, to look for a good speaker to um, to talk about. So uh, I'll do that. With that, if I if I don't see questions um, from from our audience, I would like to thank you very much um, for being in this uh, show. Show is podcast uh, speak. Uh, I understand this is the planet is a show and this is an individual podcast. So thank you very much for being in the, in the planet show. Uh, I see some clapping of hands at the bottom, right? Which is nice. And um, yeah, let's stay in touch on this. And maybe what we could do is after that meeting in February, maybe get back in touch at certain moment and that you can brief us on, uh, on if, if you got a negotiating mandate for, for a treaty. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to do that. And thanks so much for having me. It's been um, perfect. Yeah, it's been a perfect. Pleasure. Okay. Have a good evening. Uh, you're in London, so it's your evening. And um, talk to you uh, again early next year. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. Yeah, thanks. thanks.